0: So little lady, suffer
1: reject, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, hold on. Hold on. Stop searching.
0: Slow down. Slow down. But that's the way
1: it's all. <laughs>
0: sometimes he sounds like Barry Gibb to me. Mm -hmm. And and then other times, like 98% of the rest of the time, he sounds like the songs the Beatles should have done instead of breaking up.
1: This was the uh, overt mission statement of the move. The move said when – well, not the move. Excuse me. ELO. So after the move was – when the move was breaking up, uh, Roy Wood and him said that they thought they would be basically picking up where the Beatles should have kept going. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think more appropriately, they're picking up where the Beatles would have been if they'd stopped in 1967.
0: Uh-huh. If they if they had alternate universe Beatles in 67 had decided to follow George's impulses, hmm. they would have ended up being yellow.
1: If they decided to keep making like a better version of Magical Mystery Tour, maybe. Mm. I don't know.
0: There are a lot of better versions of Magical Mystery Tour. The
1: Beatles made three of them, probably. <laughs>
0: that was a weird time. I have to. I was thinking about this the other day. Was there any one beetle who had the creative uh, trajectory to have been to have gotten out of Liverpool on his own? Is that, is that the question? That's the question. Okay, first of all, I already really like this
1: episode. Um, second, I think you could argue it would have been Ringo
0: interesting
1: cuz he already had a career with That's Rory right. Storm and the
0: Hurricanes That's right. He was the he was the the catch. He was the big the big cheese. Yeah. He could have gone to London and been a session guy. Easily. He <laughs> just drive right there. <laughs> but like Lennon would have L- Lennon would was a self-sabotager. Mhm. He would have never ever like independently become a musician. Certainly no bigger than Rory Storm, who was a much better-looking guy. Better suits. You know, had, he, Rory Storm put on a show, for Christ's sake. He was a gentleman. Lennon would have been, Lennon would have been, I'm not going to do that, or whatever. It's, you know, I can't really do a Lennon.
1: I, 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 I think it's a really interesting idea. And, you know, we talked about before, like, how, you know, a lot of people even who are, like, kind of intermediate Beatle fans don't know exactly, like, how much of the time John Lennon was unhappy.
0: He was a very unhappy guy. Mad.
1: Mad and, like, but but after, I mean, I I, I had not prepared for the Beatles episode as well as I probably would have. But I would say that if you look at the first couple records, oh, man, I think the heart and soul of the band, clearly the best songwriter pound for pound was John. I mean, oh yeah, he his, was
0: running the band the start.
1: I mean, you we, we as, I I know you'll side with me on like not not slagging Paul in any way at that no, point. No, 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 no. But Paul Paul didn't I mean the the band bloomed when Paul started really finding his own when John got super depressed and started smoking weed. I think Paul really ran with the ball. But yep. if you go back and listen to those first few records, the most distinctive stuff about what made the Beatles the Beatles was songwriting, but I mean, I think John really propelled that on the first couple records, especially.
0: Sure. He he had, you know, John had John made their teen pop music sound compelling through the application of his anger. Like, teen pop music is not interesting unless there is, like, anger and desperation behind it. And John had all the anger and desperation. Paul, you know, and he was a year older than Paul. Mm Mm-hmm but i mean i think you could i think if certainly if sean nelson were here he would be mad he would be mad he would be standing here with his hands jammed in his jacket pockets trying trying to figure out a polite way to excuse himself but if he were here and engaged in this conversation he would make the case that paul had paul had the talent paul had the the possibility the capability of getting out of liverpool on his own but i would argue that he didn't i think without i think i think you're absolutely right i think ringo probably could have made a made a go at it as a as like a player Mm -hmm. but you know george was going to be a junior high teacher john was going to be a a guy at the end of the bar. I was going to say John was going to be an alcoholic. <laughs> he was going to be an angry alcoholic at the end of the bar who worked at a shop or and, who worked in like manufacturing. Paul would work in a nursing home playing piano. That's right. That's absolutely right. Paul would Paul would be probably yeah at the at the at the other end of the bar. You know, playing uh, playing his father's favorite songs. And Lennon would uh, would have hated his guts. Yep
1: but like i think you could say i mean really up the class what i consider the really the classic period everything really up to around the time of magical mystery tour um they
0: they really (laughs) let's just let's just establish magical mystery tour it's not sand
1: here's the way to tell if a beatles record is good (laughs) if you take away the singles is it still really an album yeah and they've got that yellow submarine or a couple where you're like hmm
0: yeah not not really album a lot of
1: vinyl had to die for no reason (laughs) But the the thing is, the two of them really did propel each other. And I I, I am, a, am an amateur student of this. I've read books about this. I've read the you know the whole attribution of like who different people think should get which credits on which songs. Mm-hmm. But I think the inco- fairly incontrovertible thing is, even up through the time of I'm going to say, let's just say, I think we can probably see through Revolver, they were still hugely influential on what made it onto the vinyl. Yeah. It might like back in the day, I think there was a. You can if you listen to the stuff, the Ed Sullivan kind of stuff that everybody's listening to right now. You can you can when they got their mics on and everything, you you can you could hear like how much they wrote that song together. Mm-hmm. And then soon enough, you start noticing, oh, you know, John definitely wrote the bridge on that, or more often, like Paul definitely wrote the bridge on that. Right? He probably didn't write the verses, but the performance, they just push push each other so far forward.
0: Yes. Don't you think? Well, and, you can, and even after, even after it's evident that they are writing independent of one another, they're still writing to impress one another. You can hear Paul, like Paul, being deeper than he maybe was on the first pass. He he did the first pass right. He was like, "This is amazing. I love the melody." But then he added an element of he, you know, he added an element of tension. Narrative tension to impress John. And you can hear that in there. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, John, less trying to impress Paul, but more trying to compete with Paul and, you know, and, and trying to trying to shove Yesterday back down his throat. And I think ultimately failing, failing to compete with Paul's, like, pop-generating like madness and ultimately in failing to do that resenting paul turning in that turning in that direction of like accusing paul of doing the same old thing of crazy music accusing paul of being predictable and of Mm -hmm. being all these kind of like bitter accusations that are really because he couldn't match he couldn't match yesterday
1: well, yeah, I, I, I agree. And also well, two things. First of all, like I think there's always – whenever I think about them songs, they're writing songs together, I always think about the one guy coming in with, you know, a part, like good parts. Might, maybe a verse and a chorus, maybe something like a bridge. And I always imagine in, in a lot of my favorite Beatles songs, the, one, the other guy maybe – because a lot of my favorite songs are primarily Paul songs. But I mm-hmm. imagine John coming in going, not so fast. Right or Paul coming in and going not so fast. Right, and then because like it's almost like a debate. where like some of my favorite Beatles songs. I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head, but like Paul has written this beautiful like thing that works as a unit. But then the bridge, the turn, if you like, is mm. John giving a rebuttal, mm-hmm. and that's where that that's where the like the perfect amount of cynicism comes into it. And where, that's
0: why the that's why those Wings records uh, are such. Turd Piles.
1: That's part of it. And the bass got louder and louder. But, you know, this is, this is really, really reductive. But if you think about a good pop song, like so many pop songs, there's got to be a part that's about building tension, and there's got to be a part about releasing tension. Mm-hmm. And the most reductive way to put that, I mean, is that, like, a lot of times, especially I'll say in things like New Wave and indie rock, mm. maybe, you'll have, like, this kind of minor chorus – Mm-hmm. uh verse that's all about you know kind of like tension building and then there'll be this then the poppy explosion comes mm. on the chorus. pop explosion but it could be you could invert that but do you know what i'm saying if you yes. have all if you have all like a three chord song that's all major all the way through no minors on the bridge no nothing like that it just you get the ramones which is fun for its type but even mm-hmm. they knew when to throw in a minor chord to, you've got to build it up you need to have like uh you take a cars, so you take a touch and go Right, all I need is what you got. This incredibly angular, <laughs> you, know, bam, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay, and you're thinking this has got to be the weirdest sounding verse of a song I've ever heard, and then the chorus goes, ah, no, <laughs> and you're like, how can this be the same song? But it kind of works. Yes, you know, Sonic Youth. The Sonic Youth songs are like this too. There'll be like, the, you know, this kind of symphonic like explosion in the choruses after all this angular stuff. Going on the verses and it happens in pretty much every beatles song that way too
0: i uh, when i'm sitting and trying to write songs which i have been doing for the last six years and failing <laughs> part of what i'm part of what i aspire to because i think if you listen to the long winter songs the verses are the the, the life of the tune is all in the verses the verses are expository it's they they're you know they're kind of like listicles they are (laughs) not (laughs) listicles (laughs) i don't i don't i don't see that at all and then it comes to the (laughs) chorus and there is there's an attempt to have this explosive pop you know indie pop like and now here's the chorus and half the time it ends up it ends up being a pre-chorus to a later chorus that where i try it again but I mean, I'm, I, the, the verses are where I, I really like express everything I need to express, and then I'm trying to tie it together with a, with a, with a fun chorus. Mm-hmm. And what I've been trying to do for the last six years and failing is making the verses as catchy as the choruses and making the choruses as important to the song as the verses. Oh, well, it's not and just that, the same refrain, right? It's not just uh, it's not just one word over and over. It's be kind to not- the new girl. Teaspoon, mm-hmm. teaspoon, teaspoon. I'm I when I was when I was writing that song, I really felt like each iteration of the word teaspoon. W- I was conveying a different, um, a dis- different aspect of how the how a teaspoon into the narration, mm-hmm. right? I mean, a teaspoon as a as a item to cook your heroin, a teaspoon as the most diminutive of all the silverwares, et cetera. But I did not. But I did <laughs> not. Uh, but but that that was that's pretty. Um, you know, I, I I was counting on someone writing a dissertation on it later. <laughs> Uh, I did not actually. I did not actually put all those different meanings in the lyrics. I tried to communicate those different meanings in the different ways that I sang this one word, and that you know that's very that's frustrating to me as an artist because my meaning will never be clear unless I explain it, and what's. What's great about great pop songs? What's great about the Beatles, of course, is that yeah they come in and say, "Oh, we didn't mean LSD." Lucy was Paul's aunt, and mm-hmm. the the diamonds were his, you know. And it's it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of unnecessary explaining that's just obfuscating, uh, trying to make something that's simple seem more difficult. And in and and my problem. I perceive my problem as a songwriter to be that my songs are impossibly more difficult than I could, than is evident and explaining them is just like a dumb or after the, after the fact, you know, you're like you, you had a chance to put it in the song and you, and you're, you're hoping that people are telepathic. I like that about your songs. So I
1: like that they, you know you wouldn't say that you know this is a song about that and or this is a song about this feeling. I, I, I like that about it, and I, it doesn't read as and to just go to the other end of the continuum. I don't th- I don't think they're de- they don't feel like they're deliberately
0: opaque. No, hmm. oh, no, no, no. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, no. I mean, I'm they're, they're, to make some of them... them are very puzzling
1: little puzzles, but uh, I I don't ever feel like there's some kind of like they're like a mystery song like oh actually he was dead all along or something like that. Right? You
0: know? Right? There, yeah. There's no there's no trick. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I've been trying to write songs that are like here's the here's the verse. It's just as poppy and melodic as a chorus, and then here's the chorus. And boy is it melodic and poppy! <laughs> wow, well, is it melodic and poppy? And also tells you stuff it also tells you stuff about the song and the, the ideas <sighs> <laughs> you, you know the, the thing about the thing about wings is that paul stopped caring whether his songs meant anything uh, I, i'm not sure he ever did care
1: there only needs to be one wing song <laughs> And I had, I mean, I, I personally owned at least probably three Wings forty five, which is a pretty big deal because I was eight at the time. But, you know, you set aside something great like Live and Let Die, Crazy Wackadoodle" Song. <laughs> there's sure. really only one song you need to hear to understand Wings, Yeah, I think. Well, there's probably several one songs you could hear,
0: but I'm well, going to say uh, – The major was A Little Lady.
1: Uh, oh, man.
0: Suffer a Jet. Jet. That's yes. ooh, 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 ooh. Oh, such a good song. It's oh, a great no, I song. Was, I was going to say, gonna say
1: silly love songs. Oh. <laughs> first of all, A is the bass deafening. <laughs> Check. Yes. <laughs> the bass is way too loud. It is a canonical three chord song that would not have gotten past a first table read in the Beatles. And the line's great, Doom 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 and you can sure hear it because it's nice and up front. Yes. but but here, so we got. You think that people would have had enough of silly love songs, and it's just pretty much straightforward silly love songs. Oh my God, I'm
0: uh, you, I'm already seven years old. As soon as you start singing it, I'm just yeah. like, what's Transport. wrong with
1: that? I'd like to know. Cause here yeah,
0: I go and then for the chorus. I love you. Now that's where John. Arrived upon the scene, (laughs) drunk as hell, (laughs) right there. Yeah, what's wrong with that? I'd like to know because here I go again, and then John would have said something to the effect of, "Why do I keep going again?" (laughs) Right? He would have. He would have brought a
1: counterpart to that to go. Well, wait a minute. Yes, I don't. Here's what's wrong with that. Yeah, I I do have a problem. I got a big fucking problem with silly love songs. (laughs) 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 It's a lot more complicated than that. And then thinking, at the end, you have got that little like kind of coda. <laughs> the instruments drop out, and they do it again. And you get just the I love. Oh, I can't explain the feeling that you about my love. <laughs> oh, black water,
0: keep on rolling. Hand
1: hand, hand take me by the hand, pretty hand mama.
0: That's <laughs> uh, that because at that point, <laughs> at that point, Paul. Felt that every idea that he had was the greatest idea. That, <laughs> and he was and, and he, so high. He did not need a second idea. He just needed the one idea. Oh, hundred, a hundred percent. There's no B story to it. You no know? B story.
1: it's <laughs> And everybody was like, "Okay, that sounds good. Sure, yeah.
0: let's. Hey, uh, sure, Paul. Sure, whatever you yeah. say, buddy." I was thinking about Billy Jean. Movie. <laughs>
1: We're simply having a wonderful Christmas time.
0: <laughs> bum, 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 what, what, what is that the, that's like the biggest selling single of all time, right? Or is that Mull of Kentire? Oh, Mull of Kintyre. oh, that's a good song. That was uh that was
1: Mul of Kentire was like the hugest the biggest UK UK history,
0: I think right? until Bohemian Rhapsody, probably. Um, but uh, if you think about Beat It. No, 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 I'm sorry, Billy Jean. Ah, oh, it's a great song. <laughs> doom, 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 doom. All right. Dynamite. Dynamite bass Mhm. And you listen to the way it's recorded and the way it tucks into the tune. Like it's it, really menacing. It's super menacing, like super dark and the bass tone is is shaped in such a way that it can just it can just it's not in your face, right? That baseline could have been like Quincy Jones could have could have doubled the volume on that baseline. And and probably when they were mixing it, they tried it. You know, like let's put this all the way forward. Like this is dynamite. But like part of its menace is that it's like it's kind of subsumed. Like over time the what what got me thinking about this was I was walking along, and I was singing Billie Jean, and I said to myself, wait, wait a minute, what's the bass line to this song? It is the greatest bass line of all pop music, but I'm having a hard time remembering it. And I'm walking along, and I'm like, Billie Jean is not my lover, and I couldn't recall how the bass went. Is it,
1: because- that, same, is it that same rough kind of figure through the song? i do do so it's kind of, it starts on a weird wackadoodle note so it's kind of always unresolved
0: right. so so good so good and a thing a thing but of like where where in the paul McCartney arc creative arc would he have left behind any chance of writing billy Jean like <mumbles> It 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 was sixty. I don't know. I, f- I feel like there's so much wonderful stuff at the end too. Mm-hmm. Like, but I just feel like there was the restraint, the restraint that is on those first couple of Michael Jackson solo records. The I mean, and I guess it's that Quincy Jones still had some, like, it still had some authority in the picture where. Mm-hmm where probably the last three Beatles records, there was no authority left?
1: Oh, it's also, it's, You know what it also is? I was going to say this about Paul, but it's even truer of Michael Jackson was, well, first of all, they're both just natural musicians and mm. and musical people. I mean, I really think Michael Jackson probably had something almost like a four-track in his head where he can imagine what that stuff is like. He's doing a dance, he's singing a song, he's going he's like figuring it out. So, it's like Stevie then,
0: Wonder making those records where he would play the drums. I
1: don't, I just, that's completely mind-blowing to me. He would go me.
0: in and play the freaking drums to his, the song. I forget
1: to pay my electric bill. <laughs> you know but but think about the timing on that though because you got uh off the wall and which is also amazing off right. the wall and um thriller are both pretty great um but you know it's you know what it that's was ge- that's
0: it's, generous of you
1: they're pretty good but mm-hmm. you know the thing about both of those as with paul's rise to power circa 65 was the timing was the taste that michael jackson had in the context of having quincy jones as a producer his taste got channeled in the best conceivable way so yes. paul i mean paul wrote you won't see me like uh, what a fantastic song with great edginess and like well, a, mm-hmm. every part of that song is pretty much i mean it's it's one of, it's, i think it's just about a perfect song uh, i mm-hmm. think that have a lot of Beatles songs but but you know the thing is he had to channel that through a room with those guys in it and with John in it, and with, you know, and with um, George, George Martin.
0: Right, sitting up in the, sitting upstairs. But the, the kind of taste class.
1: that makes one of the richest man, men in the world, right, simply having a wonderful Christmas time, the timing, the taste is off, the timing is wrong, and there's nobody there. He's getting all, he's like George Lucas. There's nobody there telling him, like, you, no, you've got to stop. You've got to stop
0: doing this. Yep. I, you know? I was I was listening to the radio the other day, driving in my car. I turned down the radio. do, 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 do. do, do. do. <laughs> this is the mouth, the mouth-based show. <laughs> and uh, and this band comes on, and I was you like, "You just sang a Bruce Springsteen song."
1: <laughs> you were probably singing a Pointer Sisters version of a Bruce Springsteen song.
0: Uh, I a song comes on, and I'm having this the same experience that I'm having a lot now uh, listening to modern music. Which is, I said... <laughs> These people are probably retarded. <laughs> I said, uh, this is either a Jane's Addiction like outtake I had never heard before, which I know it isn't because there is no Jane's Addiction outtake I haven't heard. Or... It is some new version of Jane's Addiction that Perry Farrell has recently put together with, uh, with Buckethead and uh, Michael Shanker and Flea. Uh, <laughs>
1: that could so happen.
0: That would so happen. <laughs> Which I haven't heard anything about, but that doesn't mean it's not. It, it hasn't happened. I bet they've taken some meetings. I bet they have. I bet Flea (laughs) sat down with Perry Farrell and was like, who can we get? Imagine that scene from Godfather 2 with the gold telephone. (laughs) 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 I'd like to thank uh, Mr. Schenker for coming here from Germany. (laughs) (laughs) When I wake up, if there's a bag of money on the table, I know I I I have a partner. Uh, Or, this is another example of this sort of owl city situation where a band is just staking their claim on reproducing with no imagination reproducing the sound of a earlier band and 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 in a way like ELO, it is amazing no that's no that's bad that's like somebody who has an instagram account
1: taking pictures of annie leibovitz pictures
0: yeah exactly Uh, i mean uh, uh, elo had this Overarching concept. Like, let's go in the direction that the Beatles would have gone if they had, like, stuck around, kept taking acid. had, had and, listen, Maybe had listened to George a little more. Listened to George a little more. Had a 24 track. And, <laughs> and a white cello. <laughs> and, a, and a white cello. Like, basically went... Yeah, right. Went into... Uh, like... Basically, expunged the blue meanies and went into a kind of magical mystery tour that was not that was not characterized by total dread. <laughs> like, let's say, okay, magical mystery tour. If magical mystery tour was not a response to the death of Brian Epstein, Ugh, yeah, right. Let's what say a tough, that tough year. Anyway, but this band. So 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 I, I do this. I do the uh, the the. The Shazam. Oh right, I saw this on the tutor. Yeah, and it turns out that it is a band that is like a young band on on a a, a record label, and they are making. Uh, it's basically like, and this is the thing about Jane's Addiction. Like Jane's Addiction was already influenced by the Doors enough. Let's say Jane's Addiction was already influenced by the Doors enough by ten percent too much. But this new band, their insight, their innovation, I guess, was to hear that there was already too much doors in Jane's Addiction and to just add more doors. Oh, like, it's just Like, it's just everything about Jane's Addiction without... <laughs> this sounds like my Guantanamo band.
1: <laughs> this <laughs> sounds like my stress music.
0: <laughs> yeah, how about sit, this? We take this. <laughs> they <laughs> chain <laughs> you to the floor, hit you with some cold water, and then play this really loud we all take, night. Uh, so we do,
1: take a little more. I take some uh, Cot stealing. We had a little more wreck vile to it. So uh,
0: so all of Perry Farrell's, all of like the tragedy in Perry Farrell, that he is a junkie, (laughs) that he is a a freak in a world that doesn't accept freaks, Mm -hmm. that he is like a sex... He's like a set he's one of these sex he's people that we've talked about he's like a gothic pan person he's a gothic pan person uh, and so in- inherently going to be unhappy the rest of his life because it's just it's, you can't be a pan person and find and no true happiness <laughs> all of that is gone it's erased because the <clears throat> singer of this new band is twenty two and has no pain and then add more doors Ugh. and i'm just I'm driving in my car and I'm like who i i mean i don't blame the person that signed it i don't bl- blame the label that's putting it out because that is the state of music today it is that i heard that owl city song uh, on the radio and i did that shazam where i was like all right this sounds so that, like that, it, that i guess right it was owl city it was owl city it sounds exactly like uh you like know, a song
1: the postal service would probably
0: not put out a, that's exactly <laughs> right a song that the postal service would have rejected yep that Ben would never have done, and yet all of his vocal mannerisms are there, but none of his vocal, none of the vocal character is there. none of the qualities, none of the, yeah, none of the things that make Ben an interesting or, or, or quirky vocalist. It's all been smoothed out. It's all been pro-toolsed away and shaved down, and yet there isn't any new, there's no new creative information. It doesn't sound like an evolution of it. It's just a, it's just a, uh, polished. It's like all the good parts are, are smoothed off. And so when I'm thinking about the music that I'm trying to make now, which is like, unlike Michael Jackson in 1982, I mean, this is the, this is the, what's crazy about that. Trying to think about, about the Beatles in 64 or five Michael Jackson in 1980 or 81, were they aware that they were like in such like kinetic communication with their time that they were like, that they were one step ahead, but not two steps ahead Mm -hmm. of their moment? Or were they thinking to themselves, we are so far out right now. We are so far out. And it was just that it's just that we were ready for it and the first time the first time we heard it we were like what is this crazy music but by the fifth time it was it it the world had changed you know what i mean like that's I do. what I, I i
1: don't i don't know the answer but i'm trying to figure it out i think with michael jackson i'm i mean just knowing what we know and kind of reverse engineering it i bet he wasn't thinking of it that way
0: you don't I, think he was thinking like i
1: am going to well, change the I don't know. He just strikes me as a guy, like, as weird as that guy was, like, he seems really admirable, especially at that age where, like, he just seemed like – he seems like he was such a creative, like, wackadoodle guy. Like like, He just wanted to make
0: people dance and he wasn't – yeah, was, real dedicated to the
1: craft of making a, you know, in the same way that the Beatles were making music at a time when a lot of people thought rock and roll was dead, even then. I mean, Michael Jackson comes out, even with Off the Wall, comes out with like the greatest disco album of all time <laughs> when disco was dead. Maybe not the greatest, but it's definitely one of the most creative. And like that, that album, Off the Wall, I think Off the Wall, you know, because it wasn't quite as ambitious, I think it in some ways is a, it's, I don't know, I, you know, the thing is thrillers sound so dated in some ways, is the problem. interesting? You and I, see, you and I go around on these production things, but the songs, I mean, you think about, what did you have, like, six, seven singles from that record? Something like yes. that? Yes. I mean, you know every song on that record. Yes. So I don't know. I mean, I, I the, the problem seems to come later on in a career, when somebody, to follow on to your point, the problem seems to come later in a career where somebody thinks, I think it's time to really, I think it's where you are. <laughs> and they're thinking, how do I get ahead of the curve? <laughs> what, what do I do? It's not rock, it's not roll. Mm-hmm. But that, that, that's and you know and that's why sometimes like every time there's a new Paul McCartney thing out I kind of make that noise. I exhale and I go, "Oh, there's going to be probably something good here, but like how could he be like a 70-year-old guy and still not know how to balance a song?" Just yeah. still I mean like I I I feel like I could write a song as good as Paul McCartney these days. Like yeah. you, there's got to be some balance to it. There has to be something more to it than just the reiteration or a list or or just the, the same theme. There's so got to be some tonight,
0: tension. There's got to be tension. Gotta that
1: ninety-five upon the shelf, ah, and just, just enjoy, enjoy yourself. Ooh. Ooh. let the madness Ooh. in the music get to you. I right? Feel so bad at all. Ah.
0: living off the wall. <laughs> living off the wall. <laughs> And the, you, couldn't, you couldn't sing that. Okay, Let's do the bass still- line.
1: Ready? You- like, how great is that bass line? <laughs> it is. I mean, they're, they're tremendous bass lines. Tremendous. <laughs> I love
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, he's talking about Linda, and I can't <gasps> listen to the songs. Like I think I think that music was the the music of my youth, and so I had no awareness of Linda really, or like Linda represented nothing to me then. So I have that sympathy for them because it's the it's the, it's the songs of my childhood. But the overlay, my my adult overlay of like Paul and Linda with their simpering romance and their yeah. like oh, just picturing them the vegetarian like, meals. Oh, just. Just canoodling together on their like fake sheepskin rug. <laughs> Paul playing "I Love You" to her, and her—I—I I don't know what—clasping her hands under her chin with cartoon <laughs> hearts floating around her even, head. Even like, then he turned her down in the mix. <laughs> I mean, what I what like Linda is such a cipher to me. I, I I have no sense of her.
1: But, I, I believe. I, I have to say, I really believe that they that, that it matters. This is a really dumb thing to say, but I think they really loved each other.
0: Except, I have known enough people who became famous in their early twenties to know that it destroys humanity to be to be famous before the age of twenty eight is a burden, a psychological burden on a person that, that handicaps their emotional development. And Paul McCartney was the most famous of all people and clearly an emotionally handicapped person anyway. So, although I do believe that he and Linda love each, loved each other because that is the story that I have been told... By them, I cannot imagine Paul McCartney loving, mm. really.
1: <laughs> because of his humanity being crushed.
0: Because, yes, because because he sat in that hotel room in New York City after the Ed Sullivan show with a cold, right? Didn't he have a cold? I don't know. He had a cold, I think, and the streets around the hotel were thronging with screaming girls. And although he was sitting in bed with a with an ice pack on his head and a thermometer in his mouth, there were because like, like, <laughs> he's clip art. <laughs> there were like four photographers in the room. Like he couldn't even be sick without right without Life Magazine. John, do you know? Uh, did they break up in nineteen seventy? The Beatles. Yeah,
1: yeah, 69. seventy,
0: seventy-one, something like that. No, no, no it was before seventy-one.
1: Nineteen seventy, Paul McCartney turned twenty-eight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Put that in your bass and turn it up.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, uh, <coughs> Duff McKagan was uh, when he first started writing for the Seattle Weekly. He was also going to Seattle U, getting his degree, I think. Uh, or maybe even a master's degree, I'm not sure. But he was taking classes. He was uh, writing this column for the weekly. It just started. And, you know, I, I feel like Duff... Uh, Duff was in rock and roll from the very beginning like of his life, right? He was in bands from 14 on. He was in Guns N' Roses. And then he... He kind of hit this, there was this period of his life where GNR was over, he was recovering from the drugs and everything, and there was a, there was a kind of period of quiet in Duff's life where he was able to say, like, go back to college and, like, I'm going to write for the Seattle Weekly and, like, you know, kind of take another stab at life from, a, from like, what I think is an amazingly humble place. Can you imagine, like, another guy w- with Duff's uh, stature showing up for class at Seattle U, like a, a little kind of Jesuit college in the middle of the city? Like, he he went to class and sat there with his, I mean, presumably not in leather pants, and taking, like, Sociology 101 or whatever. I mean, very humble uh, attempt well, the, at the regaining... The fact that I can't regaining.
1: imagine that is what makes it... So interesting is because when he's, you know, I, I realize that he's a guy who had a life before and after yep. Guns N' Roses and you're, you're, you're pals with him. And he sounds like an, like an amazing, weirdly down to earth guy. I mean, especially given what his body's been through. Yes. But no, I can't because I picture it being like a Saturday Night Live sketch where somebody, uh-huh. there's a headline somewhere about a guy from Guns N' Roses goes to college and that's going to be like a terrible sketch where there's a guy with a bandana, you uh-huh. know, with his base leaning on the desk.
0: <laughs> More cowbell. Yeah. Well, and and I think it was just enough time had passed that most of the students in his class were not really, I mean, they had heard of Guns N' Roses, but it wasn't like he was in class with a bunch of people that were pawing at him. But anyway, in uh, during this process, he forms Velvet Revolver. And so, he's, at one point, he tells this story where he's in a hotel in... Rio de Janeiro. And he's trying to finish his term paper. So he's up in the hotel on the 40th floor or whatever, typing his term paper for his, for his class at <laughs> Seattle U. But he can't concentrate because 200,000 people are chanting his name, thronging the streets, because they just played rock in Rio for a million plus people. And so he, go, you know, he goes to the window and he looks down and the streets around his hotel are all barricaded and all these Brazilian fans are like chanting and screaming. That, and he can hear it on the 20th floor or something. And he, and he just wishes that they would be quiet so that he can finish his term paper. Yikes. And like, come on where do you where do you start you know um, it must but, be hard to get people sympathetic about that situation I, you know
1: check you, your privilege
0: stuff it's Duff. It's, it, it's really a <laughs> check your privilege situation but but imagine Paul McCartney going back to college <laughs> in nineteen seventy four I believe it would go a little something like this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, well, um, <laughs> <ooh>. I went <laughs> back to college. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sitting at the desk. I gotta correct something before another moment goes by. Mulla oh. tire actually came out in 1977. I don't yeah, know yeah. what I'm
0: thinking. No, late, late, late,
1: later. Well, it's two years after Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't know what I was thinking.
0: No, I think it is the, I think it is the one of the biggest, or for according, a long time. According the biggest to
1: Wikipedia, sing- which is never wrong, right? <clears throat> Wings' is 1990, 19, 1977 release, Mull of Kintyre, is one of the all-time best-selling singles in the UK. It's a great song. It's a sing-along. It's a big sing-along.
0: It's a sing-along. That's long right. It's like, uh, it's like,
1: time.
0: it's like um, that one by Chumbawamba.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. <laughs> like right, Macarena.
0: Yeah, the Macarena.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Get knocked down and get knocked up again. <laughs> who let the dogs out? Uh, who, Ooh, I love. <laughs> <laughs> you know though I also like listening to what the man said. I had that on uh, a
0: 45 too. Very good song, but I I I just I come back to Jet. Anybody wants to talk to me about Paul McCartney? <laughs> they got to get through Jet. Exhibit A. The lyrics of Jet. Jet is an incredible pop song. Incredible. But you just have to, you just parse those lyrics for me and tell me what that song is about. And tell me that the lyrics of that song are not indicative of a of of a rot. <laughs> Didn't he smoke, like, a lot of pot? I think Paul McCartney probably smoked a lot of pot. Okay. If you listen to Paul tell it... Mm-hmm. It wasn't John that he was, was smoking pot. He was alcohol. holding it for a friend. <laughs> and Paul was smoking pot and going to art galleries when the rest of those guys... Oh, back then. Now, back oh then, God. this is the story that every that you and
1: I know, that yeah. everybody should know. You know, oh, oh, tomorrow never knows. Oh, oh, that's all John, right? Mm. Uh-huh. I'm the walrus. That's all John, right?
0: Right. Wrong,
1: wrong. and
0: wrong. Wrong. No. It's it's,
1: it's it's very frustrating. You know, we've been threatening since very early on. <clears throat> In the seven years we've been doing the show, we've been threatening to have our Paul McCartney episode. Because as much as he, he is a frustrating character, that band, that band would not have been that band. I mean, he... He uh, eh, eh, whatever. He
0: didn't even play the Rickenbacker bass that long. And yet, the Rickenbacker bass forever... Hoffner? Well, he, the Hoffner bass, of course, oh. like... The Hoffner bass was the is the like early Beatles the super I mean no one else who's going to play who's going to play a Hofner ba- violin bass now you'd have to be a real ding-a-ling. it's like you Although lost a dare to, yeah right <laughs> it is so inextricably Paul McCartney but the but for me the Rickenbacker bass that he that he started playing at the end and then played in Wings the Rickenbacker bass which admittedly Getty Lee made a run at having the Rickenbacker bass be his signature Mm -hmm. instrument. But I mean, I still think the early days of the Long Winters, Eric played a Rickenbacker bass that was given to me by Aaron Huffman of Harvey Danger. And I gave it to Eric. It was the, I think the, at the time, not only the most expensive thing that Eric owned, but (laughs) like expensive thing he'd ever touched. The most expensive thing he had not only ever touched, but, like, I gave it to him for free. I didn't just give it to him. I gave it to him for free. Wow. And it was like, I think it was like somebody handed him Excalibur. (laughs) He didn't even have to pull it from the stone. He just had to get it out of the case. That's right. And this this Rickenbacker bass, and Eric playing that Rickenbacker bass, (laughs) I swear to you, it was all... I was just trying to I was trying to capture some of the stardust of Paul McCartney and and this was the way that I this is the 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 closest that I could come like Aaron Huffman had 30 bases but the wow. Rickenbocker base was the one that I zoomed in on and you know Aaron obviously very generous guy and at that time I, you know, I, I think about this a lot. The long winners owe such a debt of gratitude to Harvey Danger because they let us use their practice base. They let us use their van. Aaron gave us our base. Like we, we couldn't have, we couldn't have even gotten out of the starting gate if Harvey Danger hadn't uh, just sort of handed us the key and said, "Oh yeah, go ahead, use the you know." Use our PA and our big practice space and our instruments. I should write them a thank you note. Yeah,
1: Aaron. I mean, I've only visited with them just a little bit, but they—they they strike me as very nice men. No, they're pricks. Yeah, you—you you, you get that when you play keys with them.
0: Yeah, well, all—all you know, all, all people in music are are desperately broken except for me and duff mckagan
1: right maybe he can help you with your songs
0: and quincy jones
1: and quincy jones god bless him boy if you get him to produce you wouldn't that be something you should go to him you should pitch him a baseline
0: well he's 90 years old
1: now is that right
0: well or something close to that i'm not sure that he would uh i'm not sure that he would know although maybe you know maybe quincy it would be expensive did i ever tell you about the time i had dinner with uh alan partridge nope <laughs> so, Alan Partridge came to Seattle too. Who is Alan? I think Alan Partridge is a TV character. Oh, yeah, no. We were Are right. you thinking of uh- <laughs> Alan, <laughs> Alan Pars- Parsons? The guy who did Pink Floyd. Alan Parsons, that's right. <laughs> Alan-, Alan Parsons project, not the Partridge project. <laughs> <laughs> Alan no.
1: Kai, oh. hands is either your head <laughs> I am the eye in the sky.
0: Certainty. That's pretty good. <laughs> I can read your He also yeah, oh, oh,
1: he also does that one song that dun- 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 dun, that one song they play uh, at a sports at
0: sports events. Yep. Yeah, they they I thought that they were a great sounding musical act. Oh, uh, it sounded amazing. You know, he doesn't sing those songs. He has yeah, a vocalist. He has his people, yeah. But anyway, so I'm sitting next uh, so so he comes to Seattle. He's given a talk about recording uh Dark Side of the Moon. And he, you know, he worked on some Beatles records too. He's finally, finally agreed to step out and finally talk about that, huh? <laughs> but an
1: you evening, know, he, an evening he, with
0: Alan Partridge. He was seventeen or something when, when, uh, when they were making the right. White Album, right? He didn't he work on the White Album? I think he did. Yeah. Anyway, so but yeah, produced, uh, is produced uh, Dark Side of the Moon, and uh, you know, right? Everybody wants to know like about the tape loop on Money and. He was he was very generous about talking about that stuff. But then afterwards, a small group of us go out to dinner, and we arrive at the restaurant, and it isn't really a small group. There's like twenty people who want to have dinner with Alan Parsons, and we show up, and you know, and he and I had been kind of talking at the cocktail party beforehand, and he was very much like, we talked for a few minutes, and then he kind of basically said. Right, I've talked to you now. I'm going to turn and talk to the next person because I, this is what I have to do now before I go back to the hotel. I have to give each person two minutes of talking, and you have exhausted your two minutes. And I was like, <laughs> "Oh, I'm fine with that. Nice meeting you." But he was already talking to the next person, you know, and saying, "Yeah, right." So we made a tape loop of the cash register. And he's, you know, he's, he's like drinking red wine and he's having a good time. Anyway, we get to the restaurant and it's, it's a long table. So not a situation where Alan Parsons can talk to everyone at dinner. It's just a very long table. And he, rather than sit at the head of the table, moves down to the, to the middle of the table, sort of like where Jesus would sit at the last supper. That's right. And so he puts his hand on the back of a chair, and the other 19 people at the event all sort of freeze. It's like musical chairs, right? The music has stopped. Everybody freezes. Alan Parsons has chosen a chair. Now what? Now where do you sit? (laughs) And there's this pregnant five seconds where no one knows what to do. No one's going to take it. No one's going to sit down at the end where they can't talk to him. But nobody wants to sit directly across from him, or and his wife is there with him. No one knows what to do, and so I said, "Well, how many opportunities? I mean, whatever the social faux pas, there are people here at this event who outrank me in a lot of ways in terms of who should sit next to Alan Parsons, but." Who gives a fuck? And so I just walked over and I sat down in the chair next to him.
1: <laughs> so his wife, his wife's on one side and you're on the other.
0: That's right. Okay. And then, and then having sat down, now everybody else has to, scr- you know, like I, I got the catbird seat, so everybody else scrambles to get like chairs at least in earshot of him. And he sits down in his chair. He looks over at me, and he basically. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he basically said, oh, you, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you managed to get to there. You managed to sit there. I mean, I think he was hoping that it would be a beautiful lady or maybe it would be someone famous, but it was me. And so I spent the whole evening basically just chatting with him and everyone else around us like struggling like like EF Hutton is speaking. That's a a terrible setup for a a one-person-based dinner. It was the worst. And a loud, noisy restaurant. And everybody's leaning in, and I'm just... It sounds like the Last Supper in a lot of ways. It was great. It was great, although no one betrayed him as far as I know. Uh, But at one point I said, so... what if I asked you to produce one of my records? And he said... Money. For the right amount of money, I will produce your record. But it is a question of money. And I said, Ah, yes, money. Do, 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 boom, do, boom, boom, do, 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 do but it's still I still think that I still think about putting together enough cash, like to make an offer on Alan Parsons coming out of retirement and recording an album for me.
1: Why would you do that?
0: What would it cost? I just it would, it just, would cost it,
1: it would cost fifty to a hundred and fifty
0: thousand dollars.
1: It would be obscene. I'm guessing what do you think? what's yeah. your guess?
0: yeah, well, uh, that's a pretty wide range, but I think
1: well, I don't think it's going to cost you less than
0: fifty. no, it won't cost less than fifty, and I think fifty it's it's one of those like producing a record is is one of those like well, what do you mean seven days right or, I mean will it
1: be all engineered and you just send him a can, or oh yeah. gosh, he looks like Alan Moore, look at him was that very handsome man
0: well, he was now he looks like uh he looks like someone basically animated a volcano. <laughs> I love
1: you. <laughs> Boy, Paul could really overdo the horn arrangements too, couldn't he?
0: I see, I am of the opinion that you cannot overdo a
1: horn arrangement. You know I love the horn arrangements. You you like you said, that's when you turn into a real band, right? When you get the horns showing up, that's when you know you're in a
0: band. Mm. Right? You said this. I and I and I firmly believe. I mean, ha, have you seen have you seen the footage of the Stax Tour uh like England nineteen sixty five? No, 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 I'd love to. It's it's on YouTube. It's all the Stax artists at the time. Like a package you know, tour kind of thing? As a package tour with Duck Dunn, with basically Booker T and the MGs right. as the band. And then every singer, Sam and Dave. Uh, but like, like this is that
1: like the Steve Cropper that that kind of group. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the game. The Muscle Shoals guys,
0: and then every singer comes out and does their, you know, two to four signature numbers. Can you imagine that? And and it's a and oh, no 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 I I don't think it was England. It might have been Sweden. It's some kind of scene where the audience is. I mean, it's worth watching just to see. How beautiful everybody was in 1966.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, like everybody's got the coolest clothes and the coolest dumb hair and their little beatnik beards and their chunky glasses. And they're so excited to see Marvin Gaye. And it's, it's, it's a fantastic, but you know, but musically it's fantastic too. But, one of the amazing things about this show is that they've got three horn players. They got the saxophone trumpet and another saxophone. And these three guys are doing all the horn arrangements of all that stacks stuff. And it's really all you need. Mm -hmm. You get the, the, you know, like on the record, you probably had 14 horns in there, but really when that trumpet comes on, like one trumpet does a lot of heavy lifting. For, in terms of like the emotional impact, of if you
1: just even if you've just got a trumpet and like a, maybe a, like a, what a tenor sax, those two together could fill a lot of space. Really, dynamite! Yeah, yeah.
0: and I, I mean, I feel like the trumpet because of the because of the whole Elephant Six, um, Milk Hotel, like bolero trumpet thing that happened. There was a while there in indie rock, early days for me, early two thousands, where the trumpet was the the equivalent of the of the head and the heart banjo, or the you know what I mean, like the band, the the Mumford and Sons banjo is now used on used by every pop band, mm-hmm. and I I really felt in two thousand and one the neutral milk Hotel trumpet was the was the the signifier and i so i was shy to use it myself because it was so
1: Well, the way they would do it i'm thinking from now you got to think of that uh, song against sex song with the big trombone and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but all, all that <clears throat> like you're talking about like um, airplane over the sea like mm-hmm. anthemic stuff but you but you used it like on um shoot uh, scared straight scared straight's mm-hmm. like the that's what are the songs I, on Pretend to Fall that have horns? I mean Scared Straight to me is like the big Motown number, right?
0: Yeah. Uh let's see. What else has horns? Uh well, you know, uh Blue Diamonds has French horn, which is the se- secret right. weapon of every uh of every great pop song. Is Neil Young. French horn. Neil Young,
1: you got uh John Entwistle.
0: Mm, mm. Ooh, oh, that's
1: beautiful. The guy the guy who played on uh well I dreamed I saw the night. what's that called that song? Armor coming, singing something. It's the title of uh, song from... Bolivar oh, <laughs> No. I. <laughs> I'm going to quit singing now. <clears throat> anyway, French horn. Very difficult instrument to play. you got to fist it. And, it uh, and also umbrusher.
0: Yeah, the, I couldn't find... At the time, I could not find a young person to play the French horn. And so <laughs> it's I like
1: gotta, getting somebody to speak Navajo. <laughs> uh, that's right. I couldn't find a code talker. Oh, no, you're going to have a hard time getting that one. <laughs>
0: Uh, so I actually had to use a music teacher, a high school music teacher, that played the French horn. Since that time, now now a lot of kids are playing the French horn. <laughs> is that is that a fact? What if you had a role in that? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people after uh, after <laughs> Baker Street came out, <laughs> the, the saxophone regained <laughs> popularity. I love that Bow. song. Bow.
1: Bow. Also, boy, you know what I used to love from the same time was uh, Year of the Cat. Oh, nice Remember, song. Al Stewart. And I'm on in the morning from a Bogart movie.
0: I, you know, I, those songs are inextricably linked to. <sighs> that's, wait a minute, that's the second time I've used "inextricable" in this podcast. I'm, I'm not going to use it a third. I'll cut time. it out. Ah, it's a you know, it's one of those things where you use a word that is uh, that's just a, that, that pokes out a little bit. I know.
1: I, I consider it as being inextricably linked to you. See. Boy, those those are snapshots in time for
0: me, buddy. But you know what they're connected to for me? The television show Taxi. What? Really? I don't don't know why. Taxi? I just think of being a lonely preteen. Taxi and, uh, well, you know, what is lonelier about being a preteen than watching Taxi? It's true. Uh, Taxi and uh, Barney Miller. I dated a girl in college that uh,
1: had a Bob James record. It's very strange to be sitting around necking and have the Taxi song come on.
0: <laughs> what? I've said, I've said it before, but when you are necking with a girl yes. in a in a dark room and your CD, your six CD changer <laughs> You're wow, Modern sudden, Day Warrior. Wait, no, wait, a minute, wait. A <laughs> no, no, no. If, if it flips over to Rush, you are in. But no, if you're if you're taking out with a girl and your six CD changer suddenly flips over to John Vanderslice's Death of an American Four Tracker. Oh, It is like somebody just poured cold water over both of you. Is that
1: right? See, I would guess there's a certain contingent that would find that very slippery as a record.
0: Well, you know what? I didn't give the girl the chance because Mm. I lunged. Oh, you were self-conscious at that point. Well, because, listen, I know John Vanderslice. Mm -hmm. I love John Vanderslice, and you, sir, are no John Vanderslice. Hmm. No, I did not want to make (sighs) out with John Vanderslice like... like, uh, like singing in a British accent in my other ear. <laughs> I I wanted I wanted Getty Lee. Uh, yeah. I, Jv. <laughs> you don't want to make out to your friends singing.
1: No. I I gotta think about that. I gotta think about that. Yeah. I used to like making out to New Order.
0: Oh, that's good make out.
1: That's good make out music. Uh I don't know. I, I haven't made out in a while. I gotta think honey about drippers.
0: it. honey drippers. What? Honey drippers. Honey drippers. Great makeout music. That honey record. Drippers. Great, yeah. great makeout music. That honey drippers record. You know, John. I bet a lot of kids today have never even heard the honey drippers.
1: Come record. with me, my <laughs> love. What was the other one? Oh, good rocking See? tonight. That That's was his right. other big one.
0: That you know that basically this is the this is the, this is one of the main problems of my life. Mm-hmm. I grew up thinking. That my sex life was going to be a Led Zeppelin based landscape.
1: Soundtrack, soundtrack, in the, in the, what you envisioned, soundtrack wise, you were thinking like, Led um, Kashmir. Ze- Ze-
0: That's right. Led Zeppelin established the, the, the baseline for what I imagined being a fully adult person <laughs> was going to be like. Yeah, you know, I'm going to reach. I'm going to reach the, uh, the age of, of, uh, of manhood. And I'm going to enter into this Led Zeppelin universe where basically I am having sex on an airplane while all of my friends are ODing. <laughs> that sounds so cool. And the airplane is going to be taking me to Hefner's mansion. I'm gonna be having sex on an airplane with somebody that I don't even know.
1: The plane might be taking you to someplace like I don't know where Montserrat is, yes, but that's I want to be having sex on a plane that's going there.
0: Right. So so anyway, the language of my early sex life was encoded in this in Led in Led Zeppelin runes. <laughs> and then the moment I arrived at my sexual maturity, suddenly <laughs> The world was written in Alanis
1: Morissette
0: oh, runes.
1: It was that late. Well, Isn't I mean... not that ironic? <laughs> 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 I'm very tempted to say stop right there. <laughs>